Uh, we have three weeks here where we're not going to be in a series, and so for today and the next two weeks, uh, I felt that what I was supposed to do with our time together is that I was supposed to remind us of some important things. They say that repetition is a good teacher. Uh, my great-grandfather was a pastor for many years, and uh, he, even though he's been dead now for 30 years, any time that I meet someone who knew him, they almost always start telling me about some sermon that they remember him preaching. Now, it's usually because of something humorous he said or some illustration that he used, but sometimes I also think it's because he employed repetition, and he employed it quite a bit in his preaching. He said that when he preached, this is how he did it. He'd tell the congregation what he was going to say. And then he would say it. And then he would tell them what he just said. <laughs> now, he, he of course uh, meant that within the context of an individual message. But what I feel that I'm supposed to do over these next three weeks is remind us again of some things that have been shared around here in the recent past in the hopes that these important things get a little deeper into our spirit through the repetition of them. And I'm hoping, because of how important it is for us not just to hear the Word, but to actually do the Word that we hear, that by highlighting these important things again, we will put action to what we hear if we did not do so the first time that we heard. And so I've gone through all of the messages that I've shared over the last two and a half years, 2017, 2018, and so far this year. And I have pulled out eight important things that I feel directed to remind us of Again, in hopes of getting them deeper into our spirit and giving us another chance to act on them, to apply them to our lives. And so we'll be looking at those eight things today and next week, for today, for next week. And then two weeks from today, we're going to take some time to re be reminded of some foundational things about our church. Some things that we all need to be on the same page about and some things that we need to be walking in unity uh, regarding. And then uh, after that, we will enter into these series that I uh, have mentioned to you. So the first thing that I want to underline, the first thing that I want to highlight, the first thing that I want to remind us of today is from a sermon that I preached earlier this year on April 7th. This is one of the most recent ones that I felt to remind us of. The message was called Children, Parents, and the Church. And if you've not heard that message, I would strongly encourage you to listen to it on our website or on our app. Now, I always feel the messages that I preach. You know, I don't just get up here and preach things that I don't feel or that, you know, I, I don't have any connection to what I'm saying. I always feel the messages that I preach, but the truth is that some of them I feel more intensely uh, than other ones. And I have rarely felt a message more than I felt children, parents, and the church on April 7th. There was a lot in that message. 
But the central appeal of the message is what I want to remind us of today. Both Christian parents and the corporate body of believers that we call the church are spiritual guardians of the children in our community, and we are to take seriously our responsibility as the spiritual guardians of our children. Today, I am specifically appealing to Christian parents to take seriously your responsibility as the spiritual guardians of your children. Your objective, Christian parent, is that your child would come to know God, love God, and have confidence in God. This is the most important job a Christian parent has. The most important job. This is more important, that your kids would know God, love God, have confidence in God. It is more important than them graduating from college. It is more important than what career they enter into. It is more important than how much money they make throughout their lives. It is more important than their involvement in sports. Their spiritual lives, their spiritual growth is the most important things in their life. The most important thing in their life and so it should be the most important concern that you have for them as a parent. And so there are two indispensable things that Christian parents must do if they are to take seriously their responsibility as spiritual guardians of their children. And here's the first one. Christ has to be the highest value and priority in your home, not your children. Christ has to be the highest value and priority in your home, not your children. But Ryan, my children are the most important thing in the world to me. I know. And that's a problem. Now, it's a problem that I'm sympathetic to. Because the truth is that in practice, my children are often the most important thing in the world to me as well. But Christians, God is supposed to be the most important thing in the world to us. More important even than our children. And when he's not... When something else is more important to us than God, the Bible calls those things idols. It calls them idols. And what many of us have done is we have made idols out of our children. When we place our children above God, we dishonor God. Not only do we dishonor God, but we do a great disservice to our children. At least one of the ways that we do disservice to them is that we are modeling idolatry for them. We, we are modeling 
idolatry for them. That while we profess Christ is most important with our lips, what they see is that our actions communicate that other things are more important. And so one of the great disservices that we do to our children is we make idolatry look normal and acceptable. In Matthew 19, 29, Jesus shared about the reward that people who left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children would receive. The message from April treated the verse in more detail, but today suffice it to say that while we may not always be called to leave our family or leave our children, the passage highlights that for a Christian, God must be first and family second. And that's ultimately what's best for children, to know that God is first and they are second. And that should inform every aspect of our parenting. The second indispensable thing, if we're going to be people who take seriously our responsibility as spiritual guardians of our children, is that the church must be the center of your family's life and fellowship. It has to be. The church must be the center of your family's life and fellowships. By all means, be well involved in your school, but the church should be the center of your family's life and fellowship. Absolutely, create community with the, the families that are part of your kids' sports teams. That is a good thing. But the church should be the center of your family's life and fellowship. Absolutely, get to know your neighbors. Establish friendships with your neighbors. Most of us don't even know our neighbors anymore, and it's a sad thing. You should know your neighbors. You should have friendships with your neighbors. You should do things with your neighbors. But the church should be the center of your family's life and fellowship. If the school or the sports team or the neighbors or the center of your family's life and fellowship, it is going to negatively impact your children's spiritual lives. It absolutely will. All of those other relationships are good things. They just aren't meant to be the center of life and fellowship for a Christian. You say, Brian, where do you, where do you get this from? Well, we get it from Acts 2, 42 through 47. By the way, we're not actually looking at these passages today because I'm just kind of doing this in review. If you're new with us, uh, most of the time around here, we will actually turn to the passage, work through a passage, that type of thing. Uh, today, I'm just kind of referencing these quickly. Uh, but in these messages, we treated these uh, in a more complete way. But Acts 2, 42 uh, and through 47 gives us an inside view of the lives of the early Christians, what they were like, okay? So you can read through that this week and you're going to see what the lives of the early Christians were like. And, and, and what you find when you do that is essentially those verses communicate to us that the church was central to the life of the believers, okay? Everything revolved around the fellowship of believers, and that is how it should be. It doesn't mean that you don't have others that are true friends and meaningful parts of your life. It doesn't mean that. 
It just means that the church family is what life is meant to be centered around. And so to be the spiritual guardians of our children that God has placed us in their lives to be, we need to make this true for our families. And for many of you here today, this is preaching to the choir. You know this and you do this. But for some of you, I don't have anybody in mind. I just know that in a group of people, any group of people, for some of you, this is not true. The, the church is not the center of your family's life and fellowship. And so I want to tell you how you make the church the center of your family's life and fellowship. It, it is profound. Here it is. You do what your church does. Maybe it's just because I haven't preached for a while, but you guys feel like a rough crowd today. <laughs> okay, see, that always makes me feel better. When I say something like that, you laugh, then I feel better. <laughs> That's how you make the church the center of your life and fellowship. You do what your church does. So your church meets every Sunday for worship. So you do too. And of course, again, I'm preaching to you, but of course, some of you here, this may be the only time you've been here for the last six weeks. So, so it's not entirely preaching to the choir just because you happen to be here today. You may need to hear that. Here is something a Christian child should never ask on a Sunday morning. Are we going to church today? A Christian child should never ask that question. And if your child regularly asks you that question, you need to do something to change that dynamic so that they don't ever ask you that question again. I lovingly and respectfully tell you that if your child is asking you that question, you are failing in your responsibility as the spiritual guardian of your child. Your church offers ministries for kids of all ages. So your kids should participate in those ministries. You do what your church does. When your church offers events for men and for women, or your church says, hey, let's all get together for a time of fellowship, you do what your church does. So you participate in those events, if at all possible. Understanding these aren't just like throwaway events. They're not just things to do to say we do things. They are done on purpose. They are done with intention. They are done to create connections between us. They are done to help the church be the center of life and fellowship. Your church encourages everyone to be involved in a small group. So you're involved in a small group. You make the church the center of your family's life and fellowship by doing what your church does. I'm reminding us of these things to drive them deeply into our hearts and to give us another chance to act on what we hear. Christian parent, what do you need to do? What action do you need to take? to be more serious about your spiritual guardianship 
of your children. What do you need to do? I encourage you to ask God that question in this moment. God, what do I need to do? Is there something that's been shared here today that I need to act on? And if God gives you something, if God drops something in your mind that you just know that's something I'm not doing and I need to do it, I would encourage you to write it down, write it down on the outline that's in your bulletin, and then commit to begin acting on it this week. I am appealing to us about this because the spiritual condition of our children, of your children, is the most important responsibility a Christian parent has. And applying these two indispensable responsibilities will absolutely aid the spiritual growth, the spiritual development, the spiritual life of your child. So I appeal to you to do it. The second thing I felt directed to remind us of is from a message that I preached exactly one year ago on Sunday, August 12th, 2018, that was titled, Speak Healing Words. Again, if you've never heard that message, I would encourage you to go back and listen. Here's the important reminder from that message. Everyone that you interact with is a person who has been hurt in some way and is in need of healing words in their lives, and so speak healing words to people. Proverbs 16.24 tells us, Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, and healing to the bones. If you've ever been on the receiving end of gracious words, you know how true this is. I have recently been on the receiving end of some healing words, some gracious words from people. And they were really, really helpful to me. At the church picnic, a brother in the church pulled me aside and just shared with me his feeling that my ministry makes a difference in the lives of people. And I knew he really felt what he was saying because he was even emotional as he was sharing this with me. And it had a deep and profound, encouraging impact on me. And then at the night of worship, a lady in the church came up to me toward the end and said, I just feel I'm supposed to tell you that what you do matters. These were gracious and healing words. Look, all of our vocations come with challenges. Uh, I never allow myself to assume that my job as a pastor is harder uh, than your jobs. All of our jobs are difficult in their own ways. I realize that. But can I tell you, without seeming like I'm going for a pity party, that being a pastor can absolutely be soul-crushing work. And Stan says, Amen. Anybody who has been a pastor knows this. Pastoring can be soul-crushing work. And so those of you who spoke those gracious words to me, you know who you are. Thank you. They were helpful and they were healing. If you have received such words, you know their power to help. You know their power to heal. 
Everyone that we interact with is a person in need of healing words. And so I'm sharing this today again as a reminder to all of us to speak healing words to other people every time the Holy Spirit nudges you to do so. Every time you get a little thought in your mind, you know, I should say to so-and-so this kind thing, this encouraging thing, you should do it. Every single time you should do it. Proverbs 12.25 says, An anxious heart weighs a man down, but a kind word cheers him up. Simple kindness in our speech can do amazing things for people. Kind words, the Proverbs tell us, can alleviate, can heal anxiety. A genuinely warm greeting is sometimes all it takes for anxiety to lift off of someone. A compliment of some kind. The thoughtfulness to thank someone for something good they've done. These things are way more powerful in the lives of other people than what we uh, often realize. You know, many people feel anxiety about their appearance. And so a simple, your outfit looks really nice, can, can uh, uh, alleviate some anxiety. I like that shirt. Hey, your haircut looks nice. Thank you. Thank you. That's one encouraging word you never need to give to me because I know my haircut looks nice. I don't need you to tell me. So. And I want to say something here. I, I, I actually am venturing off of my notes now, which is a frightening thing for me to do. But I, I do want to say something. I, I think we have gotten to a place where we are entirely too uptight as a people. Um, I, I was interacting with a uh, lady in the church the other day. Uh, she had a very nice looking outfit on and I was inclined to compliment her on her outfit. And I didn't do it. Because I thought as soon as I compliment the outfit, this is going to be misconstrued. And I have to tell you, I think that's really sad. I, 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 I think we should be able to do things like that. So we need to be sensitive, you know. Men, let me give you a little advice. Compliment the outfit, not the person, okay? Your outfit looks nice, not you look awesome. Do, do the outfit, you know, the outfit looks nice. But I personally think it's, I personally think it's sad that I was inclined to give a compliment of an outfit and I, I didn't do it because of fear of just where we're at as a culture and how touchy we all are. And so some of you might disagree with that, but whatever, I'm used to it. <laughs> Being mindful to thank people for kindnesses they do for us can be very helpful to folks. So encouraging. No, they didn't do it for the thank you. But the thank you is really nice. It's really encouraging anyway. 
affirming some good quality in another person instead of observing it and staying silent. Just simple things like this can be so helpful for people. They may be struggling with insecurity, some lack of confidence. And when you come along and you affirm some good quality you've seen in them, it heals the anxiety that they were feeling. It it, it frees them of the insecurity. Their confidence is boosted. Everyone we interact with is a person in need of healing words. So we should speak healing words to each other. Who can you heal with your words? I encourage you right now to ask God, God, who needs a healing word from me? And what is that healing word? And if the Holy Spirit drops a person into your mind, and if the Holy Spirit brought to your mind a healing word that you could speak to them, I encourage you to commit to finding the opportunity to sharing that sometime this week. Some of us may need to speak a healing word to our spouse or to our children. But whoever it is that God brought to your mind, speak the healing word to them this week and then just keep doing it. Make a practice of it. Just do it every time that God drops someone in your heart. Keep asking God who needs it and what is it they need to hear. And then just keep speaking the healing word. Important reminders. Take seriously your responsibility as the spiritual guardians of your children. Everyone you interact with is in need of a healing word, so speak healing words. And here's the third important reminder. Life is better when it's appreciated as a gift instead of clung to as an entitlement. This is from a message that I preached on March 19th, 2017, titled Improve Your Life, Appreciate the Gift. Again, I encourage you to listen if you haven't. Acts 17.25 tells us that it is God who gives us life and breath and everything else that we experience in life. It's all a gift. Freely given to us by God himself. Life is a gift. But there's a second truth about life that often compromises our appreciation of the gift. And that is the truth about the brevity of life. How short it really is and how quickly it goes. Job 14, 1 and 2 tell us of the brevity of life, comparing life to a flower that blossoms and then quickly withers, and comparing life to a passing shadow is here, and then it's gone. James 4, 13 through 15 delivers the same message, comparing our lives to a mist that appears for just a little while, and then it vanishes. So life is a gift. But this second reality of life often compromises our appreciation of the gift, and it troubles us so much that we begin to cling to life As if it's an entitlement, which it isn't. We cling to it as an entitlement rather than receiving it as a gift. 
Life is much better if we appreciate it as a gift instead of clinging to it as an entitlement. So how do we do that? I think one of the main ways that we do that is by getting a firm grip on the first truth that life really is a gift from God. And part of what we have to do to do that is we have to embrace what is always true about gifts, that we have no right to them. You have no right to a gift. Gifts are always voluntary on the part of the giver. Gifts, including the gift of life, they're all grace. They're all grace. If we view life as an entitlement, then the brevity of life feels like an injustice. But if we, if we receive it as a gift, then the length of life, whatever it is, is all blessing. Because we know we had no right to any of it. Life is God's to give. It's his gift to us. Some of us will get to experience this gift for 90 or more years. That's what I'm going for. Some of us will get the average. Um, I, I was going to say it's 78 years, but I actually think over the last three years it's gone down a little bit. I think it's like 76.8 or something like that. Some of us will get the average. Some of us may fall somewhere below the average. Sadly, some of us may fall substantially below the average. But whatever time we get, it's all gift. It's all grace. And if we can believe that, if we can embrace that truth, it's going to improve our experience of life. Instead of becoming frustrated with the brevity of it all and cursing the passage of time that leads us closer to our allotted time, instead of doing that, we'll live in appreciation of each moment as the gift that it is. We will savor the moment. If we do this, it improves our experience of life and it also brings comfort when the time of our end arrives. There are a few things I believe that could change our lives for the good more than coming to truly view life as a gift instead of an entitlement. And if no one else needs to hear this, I do, because I turned 50 this week. <laughs> Here's another truth that will help our attitude about the brevity of life. Not only is life a gift from God, but God provides another gift that supersedes the gift of life. He gives us eternal life. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. If we can ever really believe what we Christians say that we believe, then not only can we come to the place where we truly appreciate life as a gift from God, but when the brevity of life catches up to us, 
and we come to our moment of death, we will know deep in our spirit at that moment that what's about to happen is really just a transition to eternal life. And so fear is gone. Regret is gone. Because we've really come to believe what we say we believe. Life is a gift from God. Eternal life is a gift from God. We receive them both as gifts. Both as gifts. Understanding that both are all grace given freely by our gracious God to be received with appreciation. And here's the fourth reminder, the final one for today, that I felt that I was supposed to highlight in hopes of driving it deeper into our spirits. It's a simple one. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. This came from a message on March 12, 2017. Again, I encourage you to listen. Here is the only way that the enemy of your soul ever truly wins in your life. And that is if you give up. So don't give up. Philippians 1.6 promises us that we can be confident that, quote, He who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so here's what we can take from that. Don't give up when your spiritual growth is slow. God is committed to you and God will complete his work in you. Some of us feel like that when it comes to spiritual growth, it's two steps forward, one step and five-eighths back. <laughs> two more steps forward. One and three-eighths back. And, and, and it just feels like this is going really slow. And it becomes frustrating and kind of feel like, what's, what's the use? What's the, what's the point? Philippians 1.6 tells us what the point is. God got involved with us fully intending and fully capable of completing his work in us, no matter how slow the process is. And so don't get discouraged if your process is slow, if your progress is slow. Just keep going. Don't give up. Galatians 6.9 encourages us to, quote, not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. And so we can take from that that we shouldn't give up when living right doesn't seem to be paying off. How many of you, well, I won't ask for a show of hands on that one. Okay, this brother is willing to say, yeah, living right does not seem to be paying off. We feel that way, don't we? We feel that way a lot of the time. Like, look, I'm trying to do right, and look at all these people around me aren't doing right, and look at all the wonderful things that are happening in their lives. But Galatians 6.9 says, don't give up when living right doesn't seem to be paying off. Just keep doing it. Why? Because God has promised a harvest to everyone who lives right if they just won't give up. So don't give up. 
Job 23.10 assures us that God knows the way that we take and that even though we may go through seasons of testing, we're going to come out of those seasons as pure gold, people refined by the fire. And then John 16.33 assures us that while we're going to have trouble in this world, we can be at peace knowing that Christ has overcome the world. And so these verses and others like them encourage us to not give up when life is hard. I, I love life. But the older I get, it's not getting any easier. I, like, I love life, but life is hard. Life is hard. It's a blessing, but it's hard. Don't give up when life is hard. And then here's a big one. 1 John 1.9 tells us that when we sin... If we will simply confess our sin that God is faithful and just, he will forgive us of our sin and he will cleanse us from unrighteousness. And here's what this verse tells us. It encourages us to not give up when we have sinned yet again. When we've sinned yet again. I believe that there are people here today who even this week you have been contemplating giving up. Probably there is a person or multiple people in here for each of these reasons to give up that I've just listed. That those apply to you. You have considered giving up this very week. And what I hope that you're going to do today, if that's true for you, is that you'll receive this reminder as I believe God intends it for you. And that is a reminder not from Brian, but a reminder from God himself that you should not give up. Before God ever got involved with you, before you ever surrendered your life and said yes to his offer of salvation, God knew exactly how fast or how slow you would grow spiritually. He knew that. God knew before he ever got involved with you. God knew that you'd be in the place you're in right now. Feeling like living right isn't really paying off. And might not be worth it. He knew the temptation you'd face to allow the difficulties of life. To convince you that God isn't really good. He knew the suffering you'd see around you. Or the suffering that you'd experience yourself. Would cause you to wonder why God doesn't intervene. The way that we would like for him to. And he understood before he ever got involved with you that. When you would have these temptations that at times it would cause your faith to grow weak. God knew before he ever got involved with you. Every time you'd sin for the rest of your life. In the moment that you were receiving Christ as Savior and Lord. God saw every sin you would commit the rest of your life. And he still got involved with you. He does not approve or condone your sin. 
If anyone ever tells you sin's not a big deal to God, they either don't know what they're talking about or they're purposely lying to you. Sin is a huge deal to God. It's a huge deal to God. But when he got involved with you, he knew every sin you would commit. And though he does not approve or condone your sin, he's not surprised by it either. He's not shocked. He's not shocked. He's not repulsed by you. God's not on his last nerve with you. Oh my gosh, if Brian does that one more time. That's not where God is. That's not how God is. That's not who God is. God knew all of it. He knew every temptation to quit that you'd face in life. And he still involved himself with you because he knew that he was going to be committed to you for the long haul. He knew that he was committed and fully able to complete his work in you. And he knows he can work in and through and around all of your struggles and complete his work if you'll commit to doing the one thing that only you can do. Don't give up. The enemy wants you to give up because it is the only way that he wins. The enemy does not win because you sin. He only wins if you get so defeated by your sin that you stop repenting and you stop fighting against it. He doesn't win when you wonder why life is so difficult and you wonder why God doesn't respond to suffering the way that you think he should. He only wins if you allow those questions to discourage you so much that you walk away from God. You quit believing and you quit living for God. He doesn't win if you face the temptation to think living right doesn't pay off. He only wins if you actually quit living right. Because you conclude once and for all that it does not pay off. He does not win if your spiritual growth is slow. He only wins if you quit on your spiritual growth. And so whatever is tempting you to quit today... I hope you'll hear the voice of the Spirit encouraging you this morning. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. I will complete my work in you. May each of us apply these important reminders to our lives and act on them. For the glory of God and for our own well-being and the well-being of our children. Why don't you stand? 